We're in Exodus chapter 3, continuing our little jaunt through the Old Testament, picking stories here and there as we go, as we seek to find and see, not find, but see Christ in the Old Testament. And I don't mean to say as we go through this study that these are the particular texts in which you see him, or that there are certain texts in which if you have the eye and look the right way, you can see Christ in there. But rather, we should be building the habit. We're choosing some stories, and maybe some of the more obvious stories. But what we should be learning or at least convincing ourselves of as we go is that the whole Old Testament serves this purpose. And that is to prepare us to see, to understand the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is not a thing unto itself that we try to find little hints and resonances of Christ, but it is about Christ. Again, don't forget in John 5, Jesus said to those who were not believing in him and who thought they believed Moses, he says, you most certainly do not believe Moses. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. And that little line right there is challenging for us because it tells us how we must then go back and read the entire Old Testament. He, they, wrote about me. It's not like, oh, you can find me in a few obscure texts. <laughs> you know, there's a few images that really, if you kind of look at them, they kind of tell you what I'm, no, no, he wrote about me. This story is about me. And that's the purpose that the Old Testament has. And we ought to train ourselves and think through how to read the story in that way. So even though we're choosing particular texts and kind of hop skipping and jumping around, uh, we ought to, uh, I, don't, I don't want you to, to lose that fact. It's not that these are the Christ-centered texts. It's that these are little examples we're pulling out of the whole Old Testament, which serves this purpose. Now, last week we considered Israel in, <clears throat> in Egypt. They were flourishing, they are multiplying, they're prospering, and Pharaoh, a Pharaoh comes along, we're told, who knew not Joseph, right? That chapter of the story has ended a new pharaoh has come into power, and this story about some guy named Joseph who helped them overcome a famine and who blessed Joseph's family because he did this and was used by God to do this, that story is, is gone. And so I don't care who this Joseph is, and I don't care who these people are. All I know is they inherit some really good agricultural land, and they're, they're growing in number, and we've got this immigrant population basically living within our land, growing to a position of great power, and... The Pharaoh's like, I'm not putting up with this. This is a, this is a, 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 a policy that's really going to be disastrous if we ever go to war. We've got a foreign power basically living within our land. Let's go. We're going to enslave them. And so they do. They enslave them, and they try to really put the vice, uh, vices down on them and make their labor very hard. But the harder he presses, the more they prosper, the more that they, they flourish. And so finally he comes up with the scheme to kill uh, the children, but he's flummoxed there as the midwives refuse to participate. And again, the Lord is blessing them and, and uh, so forth. And we considered uh, this, this identity that we have as the people of God. And this story, the story of the Exodus, really, it, again, we can talk about the whole Old Testament being Christ-centered, but we talked last week about how this story of the Exodus really is the underlying story. 
it's a true historical story, but it's the underlying story that really becomes the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we don't understand the Exodus, if we don't understand the role of Moses and the role of Pharaoh, these sort of characters that are held up before us in history, then we're going to have a hard time understanding what Jesus is doing. Passages like John 8 that Mark read will make very little sense to us. And even the cross will make very little sense to us if we don't understand this basically uh, archetypal story of, uh, of the Exodus. Well, in the intermediate chapter, from chapter 1 to chapter 2, or 3, in between there, which we're skipping over, is Moses growing up. And you remember Moses is one of those children who uh, was saved from the execution of the Pharaoh. And he's, you know, his mother puts him in the basket and puts him out in the river, and Pharaoh's daughter sees him. And ironically, while Pharaoh is trying to eliminate uh, the children of Israel, this one who will become the champion of Israel is actually brought into his house and raised as an adopted grandson uh, in his own house. Moses flourishes. And so Moses grows up in a place of real prominence. I mean, from, from ultimate obscurity, you know, your mother leaves you in a river, uh, to unbelievable prominence, right, being raised in Pharaoh's house. But the time will come in chapter 2 when Moses, who has a sense and understanding of who he is, that he's not Pharaoh's grandson, even though he has enjoyed the privileges of growing up in the house, uh, Moses' heart starts to be pulled toward his kin. He looks at his family. He looks at his, his kinfolk according to the flesh and sees their suffering, and his heart is stirred by this. And he wants to be a champion. He wants to do something for them. He wants to act. Something's got to be done. <laughs> and Moses takes it upon himself then one day as he sees, again, one of his fellow Hebrews uh, being, being abused by a, an Egyptian uh, taskmaster. Moses comes and defends him, right? His, his Hebrewness comes out. And he can't contain himself anymore. No longer can I enjoy all the, all the prosperity of Pharaoh's house while my brothers suffer this way. And so he comes and he, he attacks the attacker and ultimately strikes him and kills him. And this heroic act is not rewarded. But rather it just creates disdain in the hearts of his kin. And they're like, what are you doing? Like, hey, we've got this. We can handle this. We'll endure this because you now striking him and killing him is going to bring it down infinitely more upon us. And they turn with hatred toward Moses. And they say, get the heck out of here. And plus, we've been watching you, you know, living in this place of prosperity all this time while we're suffering. Get the heck out of here. And so Moses flees with his tail between his legs. He leaves Egypt and he goes out. And Moses is off the scene now for 40 years. 40 years he's out of Egypt, wandering around, coming into the land of Midian, meeting Jethro, marrying his daughter. I mean, he, is, he, you know, he, he grew up in Pharaoh's house, and now he's back to obscurity. And he's out there in the wilderness somewhere, and now he's a shepherd. He, he went from the river to a place of ultimate privilege within Egypt, now to a place of ultimate obscurity, as he's once again, or not once again, but he's tending sheep out in the wilderness. This is his life. He's on the back of the desert 
when we find him in Exodus chapter 3. Like he's way out there in Obscurityville. He is, he's, he's long gone. And it's in that context that we come to chapter 3 where God comes and meets him in this, again, iconic story of the burning bush. Now, I want us to think about a couple things in this story, and particularly, I want us to think about the God that we meet in this story, our God, the God of the Bible, and then I want us to come back and reflect upon Moses and what he's called to do. So let's, let's think, let's start here with God. Because we are introduced to Moses, and Moses is in obscurity. He's out there in the back of the desert, and the, and the Lord comes. We're told in verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, came to Moses, in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. <clears throat> so God chooses, and we'll come back and reflect on why, God chooses 40 years later, Moses is basically 80 years old at this point, uh, and why at this point God comes and now engages, uh, engages with Moses. But again, let's first think about the God of this story. He appears to him in a burning bush, and the bush is burning. It's not being consumed. This is an amazing sight. Moses probably has seen a lot of things out in the wilderness in his 40 years of, of shepherding, but he hadn't seen this, and it does catch his eye. It's not, he, he looks, it's still burning. He does this thing. He looks back, that bush is still burning. It should have been consumed by now. So he decides, you know what? I'm going to leave my sheep. I'm going to go over here and just check this out. This is something you don't see every day. And so I'm going to go get a selfie in front of it or whatever he's going to do that we would do. And he goes over to see this bush. But as he approaches the bush, he gets the voice to him, Moses, Moses. Now, now, the, the bush is shocking, and we don't t say what, how Moses' immediate response, except that all we're told is he says, here am I. He responds to the Lord. But, I mean, a bush that's not consumed is shocking, but a bush that speaks to you, even more shocking. And, and the bush does. The Lord speaks to him from the midst of the bush. And we're told that the angel of the Lord, this is, one of the, this is a character in the Old Testament that pops up here and there, this angel of the Lord. But what we know about the angel of the Lord, when this title is used for a character in the Old Testament, this angel of the Lord speaks, but speaks as God in the first person, right? The angel of the Lord in this case is so identified with God that it is God in their midst. It is God, if you will, behind the veil. Like we, we call these in the Old Testament theophanies, right? Appearances of God, whether it's in uh, the burning bush, a pillar of fire, uh, or different theophanies where God appears to man, appears to his servants uh, throughout, the, uh, throughout the Old Testament, and oftentimes it is in this character of the angel of the Lord, as if it's God behind the image of an angel, God behind the image of a man. We saw uh, uh, the Lord come and meet with Abram, right? These three men that came and encountered, uh, encountered Abram. We see God appearing behind. If you're wrestling with Jacob, we talked about that passage, the angel of the Lord comes and wrestles with Jacob. It's God, but it's God covering himself. It's God behind the image of this angel. And so I, even though we read in, in verse 2 that the angel of the Lord appeared, I don't want you to be distracted by that because clearly as he begins to speak, it's the Lord himself speaking. And as he speaks to Moses, Moses says, here I am, whatever Whatever God's going to say to him, Moses is willing, and he's humbled before the Lord, and the Lord tells him to take off his shoes. You're standing on holy ground. 
Now, I don't know why he tells him to take his shoes off. There's speculation as to why he tells him to take his shoes off. But either way, the statement he makes is, Moses, you are on holy ground. And Moses is humbled in his presence. I want us to think about two things about the God of this passage, and they're both true about him. And I think we can often make the mistake of emphasizing one or the other when we come to talk about God. The first thing we got to recognize about God as we encounter him in this passage is that he is holy. If you haven't read R.C.'s book, R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, you should read it. I've often said it's the first theology book I ever read. I was in, like, I think I was in 11th grade or 12th grade and read it, so it's eminently readable. Um, but why I, that book is so foundational in my life, it's not the only book on God's holiness, but what was so great about that book for me is that it was the first time that I really thought about God. We think we think about God, but we don't really think about God. We think about us and what God does for us. We think very little, in fact, about God. Think in your own life. Think about when we talk about God, what we generally talk about. What we generally talk about is Jesus, which is great. I'm not here. Don't, we don't want the pastor saying you should talk less about Jesus. That's not the point of the sermon. But we talk about Jesus a lot because of what Jesus did for us. And that's a wonderful thing. That's an awesome thing. But just put, if you can think now, and what I'm saying to you may be very foreign to you. You may be saying, what the heck are you saying to us? Because we don't know the distinction in our minds about talking about God and talking about what Jesus has done for us. When I talk about what Jesus has done for us, isn't that talking about God? Yes, yes. But often what it is, it turns into talking about me. It's me. It's about what Jesus did for me. It's about what God does for me. It's about how God thinks about me. And I believe this is a huge problem. It leads to a very self-centered Christianity, to a self-centered church. And we have to be careful of that. We ought to train ourselves to think about God, but it's hard to think about God because God is infinite. And the minute we start to have thoughts about God and try to think about God, our brain starts to sizzle. You know, smoke starts coming out of our ears. It's hard stuff. And so we divert. We, we turn our minds away. We, we can't think about it. We can't think about the holiness of God. Well, Sproul was the first one for me. I was a kid. And still, it's hard. But he was the first one that just wrote a book about God for me. I mean, he's not the first one to have written a book. But it was the first book I read that was just about God and the greatness of God as God for God. Not for me, for God. And told me that I need to humble myself. I need to be silent. I need to get out of the way and just look upon him and think about him and his greatness and his glory. Now, again, I can't do it. I'm too pathetic. My attention span is too pathetic. I look at him and I come back to me. 
because me is what I like best. But that's what I have to confess, that me is what I like best. And that's why I turn discussions about God into discussions about me. I thought about this the other day on Twitter. I saw uh, Tim Keller had a quote, something. And it was about what Jesus did for me. You know, it was great. It was a great quote. It's true. Amazing. Amazing. About what Jesus did. But I remember thinking, just as I read it, I don't know why. I had a little bad taste in my mouth. I'm like, uh-oh, why? Is it because I preach about this stuff all the time? Lord, I'm not getting bored with this truth, am I? What, what, why, why, when I read that, did I get a little, and I didn't know why. It's certainly not the truth of it. I cherish that truth. I know that. But I think this is why. Because it did, as great as it is, as great as that truth is, what it did for me in the moment, and I, I, it, took some, it took some reflection to think, what's happening right now? It's almost like you got to step outside and say, okay, what's happening, to, what's happening to Bill right now? But it was that. That as glorious and great as this is, it's all I ever hear. It's all I ever hear about God is what he's done for me. And it's awesome. Please don't hear me saying it's not awesome. But I hope that you can be, or maybe, maybe begin to have this thought introduced to you that it can also be dangerous. And sometimes we need to get out of the picture because God was infinitely glorious before you ever came on the scene or before I ever came on the scene. God was infinitely glorious and infinitely pleasing Within the Trinity, the Father was infinitely pleased with the Son, and the Son was infinitely and eternally pleased with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit to the Son and the Father in unity. He is not great and glorious because of what he's done for me. That is a manifestation of that greatness, to be sure. But if that's where my love for him, if that's where my worship of him always comes back to, what he did for me, what he's doing for me, what he's going to do for me, then we will be walking, I think, a dangerous line that can very quickly fall into self-worship. God exists for me. I don't exist for him. Moses meets God in the wilderness. Take your shoes off. I don't know why. But this I do know. You're on holy ground. Not because that special ground but because I'm here. And Moses, Moses, we're told, hides his face. He can't even look upon the image. And what image is it? It's a burning bush. It's amazing. No man can see God and live. He will later tell Moses in this same book, in chapter 32, when Moses says, may I see you? And he says, you cannot see me and live. Just to see me, you'll be smoked. You can't see me and live. And here Moses is overwhelmed by the presence of God, not by the land, not by some weird image of a burning bush, but because he's in the presence of Almighty God, he can't even lift his face. And we will do well to remember from this text that the God that we worship is a holy God. We are way too casual about the way we think about God.
I am way too casual about the way we think, I think, of God. And I'm embarrassed to say that, well, I read that. When I, so now, 30 years later, after reading Sproul's book, I, I, I don't know if I've advanced at all in my desire to just look upon his glory and his greatness and to be humbled by it. But this is what we ought to do. So I confess that to you today. But what we, what we learn in this story is that the God that we worship, the God that calls Moses, the God that's going to come redeem his people is in fact a holy God. And when Moses will say to him, look, I'm going to go to these people. You're telling me to go to these people and tell them that I was out in the wilderness and a bush was on fire and it wasn't being consumed. And then it spoke to me and it told me to go and to tell Pharaoh, the most mighty man in the world, to let my people go. And they're going to say to me, who told you this? <laughs> you, you say a bush. <laughs> a bush was burning, you say. <laughs> Now, i got to have a name. I can't go in with a bush. I need a name. They're going to say to me, who said this to you? And when they ask me, what's his name, what shall I say to them? And I love it because he just says, you tell them, I am sent you. It's like, what, what name is that? I am. Like, what's your name? All the gods have names. What's your name? And he says, I am. You tell them, I am that I am sent you to them. Like, what do you do with a name like that? What does that mean? The beauty of that name is it's like, you cannot define me. There is no box that you can put me in. He doesn't say, I am the almighty one. Okay, so I put him in the box of power. God is power. He didn't say, the, okay, he's love. He's the all-loving one. I mean, there's many names in the Bible that we eventually give to God, right? Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. That's a true name. That's a good name for God. You know, Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, right? The Lord of armies. Oh, that's a good name for God. That is not the name he gives. Those are all wonderful names, things we can ascribe to him. But when he says, look, what's your name? I'm looking to define you. Let me tell them exactly who you are. There's no way to define this. Just I am. Deal with it. I'm God. I'm the almighty. I'm the undefinable, the unboxable. You can't put me in a box or within your limits of understanding. I am this is the God that we serve. Oh, we have such a small view of God. We, we humanize God. We just make him a little bit better than we are. He's the almighty creature. That's kind of how we view him, the big man in the sky. But when Moses says, who are you? He just, just blows up every definition and blows Moses' mind and just says, I am. So one of the challenges I have for you today to take from this is to look, build a little bit of sensitivity in your heart to ask when something excites you about God, ask what's exciting you right now. Now, again, don't hear me saying you should not be excited about what God has done for you. What God has done for you is unbelievable. And we're going to get to it in this text because what he's going to say to Moses, is, I'm going to do something for them. Our God 
the holy, undefinable God, the I am God, is a God who will go on in this passage to say, and I've heard my people, and I love them, and I'm going to do something for them. So you don't want to make the other mistake, that God is sort of this undefinable, I can never really know him, he's just so high, unrelatable, sort of that deistic God, he's just up there in the sky somewhere, and we can't really know anything about him, and to try is ridiculous. No. This God, the I am God, the undefinable God, is a God who comes in the form of a burning bush and speaks to Moses. He finds Moses and says, Moses, come here. I want to talk to you. You're my guy. I'm going to do something through you, Moses, for my people. And we must hold these two things in balance. So on the one hand, he's a holy, undefinable other, mind-blowingly different and great God that you will spend all, I was going to say, you can spend or could spend all eternity, but I quickly changed it to you will spend all eternity thinking about and looking at and reflecting on, and you will never get bored because he is infinitely that is our glory. He is that on the one hand. He is the one who dwells in the heaven of heavens. And he is our father. He's that. But he's also the condescending God. Not condescending like, don't be condescending to me. Condescending means to descend with. And so condescension is actually a good thing. Right? It's when exalted things come down to be with us, but we say, you're, con you're, you're being so condescending. Well, that would be a good thing, but it's not a good thing when we say it because what we mean by it is, you think you're above me. Don't speak to me as if you're speaking down to me. You're being very condescending. But if they're truly above you, sometimes you need people to condescend to you because they're much smarter than you. And if they say it in their language, you will not have a clue what they're saying. And so we need them to condescend and come down with us and put it in our language. Like, that's a good thing. So condescension to come down, descend, con with, is a good thing. And our infinitely glorious I am God, like on your own, you would never know him, is so glorious because he also condescends. He comes down and in this form of the angel of the Lord and the burning bush speaks in Moses' language. He talks to him in words he can understand and calls him out. Get a hold of both these things. So I love the Lord's Prayer. Jesus said, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed, holy, be thy name. Both. He's the holy one who's in heaven, but he's my father. He's the I am who condescends and says, Moses, Moses, take off your shoes. But then he's going to say these kinds of things to him. Verse seven, and the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Think about that. I said it in the prayer. I don't know if it offended you. 
You are nothing. I am nothing. We are the dust of the earth. God reached into the dirt and made you. We think we're something. We're so impressed with ourselves. But we're nothing but what God has made us to be. And God says to Moses, I have heard my, they're mine. These are my people. I've heard their cry and I know, I am acquainted with their sorrows. I care about them. And you feel bad for these people because they're being oppressed. And if anything in, in the 21st century we care about, it's oppressed people. In fact, everybody's oppressed in, this, in, in our day and age. Okay, Everybody's oppressed, which unfortunately really diminishes the word oppression so that we actually end up caring about nothing. We think we care about everything. We start to feel bad for the oppressed people. What we forget about is the fact that we, the people whom God hears, the oppressed, the, 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 the image bearers that God hears and cares about are also those who have raised their fist to God and said, don't you tell me what to do. I'm not going to be bossed around by you. This is what human beings do. I don't care the most oppressed person in this world. We should feel bad for them on one level. There's, of course, there's no doubt about that. We should care about oppression. But let us never forget that on the scales of infinite justice, we all as human beings, from the most oppressed to the greatest oppressor, are all in the same boat in the sense that we have raised our fist to God and said, don't you dare tell me what to do. These oppressed people in Egypt in this case, the fact that the Lord hears and cares, we just think in some sense because they're oppressed, we feel bad for them, and, and we should on a very human deep level. But don't forget the fact that God cares about them is what's shocking. Because they've rebelled. We're sinners. We've rebelled against God. Not only are we nothing, we're the dust of the earth. We're rebellious dust. We're dust that has rebelled against God. And yet, they're mine. They're my people. And I've heard their cry, and I know their sorrows. So, two things we have to think about God. He's holy. He's I am. Yet, this holy I am God is not the God of deism. That's why you ask people when they say they don't believe in God, ask them what God they don't believe in. And what you'll find out is the God they don't believe in is this higher power, this, the big man in the sky. You say, great, I don't believe in him either. The God I believe, let me tell you about the God I believe in. The God I believe in is the infinitely holy God, but the God who in his infinite holiness has condescended in grace and mercy to love people who have rebelled against him, to love sinners. He's heard their cries and he knows their sorrows. And what's awesome about this is when Moses says to him, and you've heard me, if you've been in this church long enough, then you've heard me say why I, one, one of the, this verse I love so much here, where the, Moses says to the Lord, who shall I say send me? They're going to ask me, a bush? I'm going to say, no, no. He said his name is I am. But then he says, verse 14, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am sent me to you. I am the undefinable God. But then verse 15, moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Isn't that awesome? 
The name of God. What's my name? I am. Try to define it. You can't. You will not put me in a box. I am the infinitely glorious God. Oh, but tell them also, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's my name. Tell them that. I'm a father who art in heaven, whose name is hallowed. I'm the undefinable God who condescends nonetheless to make myself known to actual people. And I let them call me theirs. I will be your God as if you possess me and you will be my people. In fact, put it right in my name. My name is their God. That's my name. Tell them, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You go tell Pharaoh that and you tell the people of Israel that. What an amazing, wonderful, beautiful thing. And that's why these truths about who God is for us is also infinitely worthy of praise. Don't ever stop thinking about it. Just beware of what it's doing to you when you only focus on he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When you only ever focus on he's the God of affirmation. When you only focus on he's Bill Spanger's God. That's a wonderful, amazing thing. But it's also dangerous if you don't couple it with it, he's the I am. And let me get myself out of the story for a second and just dwell on that. So we hold these two things in balance. Now, finally, let's just flip over to Moses quickly. What is God doing? He calls Moses and speaks to him to say what? Moses, you're my guy. I've heard the cries of my people. I know their suffering. I love that phrase because I think of Isaiah 53, that he was acquainted with our grief. Don't forget who this is talking to Moses. It's God himself. And when God becomes flesh, he comes not only knowing our grief, but he bears our griefs and our sorrows. So I love that phrase, I know. And Moses doesn't even know how well God knows the griefs of his people and the sorrows of his people. He has no idea what God's about to do. But he calls Moses and says, Moses, I'm going to do this. But I'm going to do it through you. Go tell Pharaoh. Let my people go. And Moses is like, excuse me? Me? I, I, I can't speak well. Think about this. This didn't hit me until today. I heard, I heard uh, 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 Vody Bauckham <laughs> speaking about this. And he commented on how Moses' Egyptian would be so bad. You know, 40 years not speaking a language. I didn't think about that till it hit me that, uh, you know, Austin Davies from Germany, who's over here at Chapel Field, his family moved, you know, he's, he's now been in America for two years, speaks very, very good English, obviously, but his family moved over here, and, and Austin's very nervous about losing his German. And I thought, how do you lose a language? Well, you don't speak it for many years, and all of a sudden it gets really clumsy. You lose all of its nuance. You can't speak well anymore, and you're just not used to it anymore. So he's trying to find ways to speak German. Moses hasn't spoken Egyptian in 40 years. And God says, go talk to the king and explain this to him. <laughs> explain that you were talking to a burning bush. You put that into Egyptian. And that he told you, let my people go. Me? And not only that, but last time I was there, my own people kicked me out. One of the things I take from what Bauckham said about it was that why does God wait 80 years? Why does God wait 40 years of Moses in the wilderness? And I believe the answer is, is to qualify him by making him eminently unqualified. Like there was a time in which Moses would have said, let's go. 
Obviously, he was willing to strike this guy on the head. Had God come to Moses and said, Moses, you're my guy. I need you to go to Pharaoh. He might have done it. He might have been like, okay. But God waits, draws it out. 40 years of being a shepherd, losing all your Egyptian, wallowing for 40 years, thinking that people hate you, and now says, okay, now we're ready. Now we're ready for you to go, for you to be my man, because now you are so eminently unqualified that you're my guy. And I'm going to send you in there to do this. And Moses says, what, me? But I can't do it. And the Lord says, I will go with you. This is verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, that is God, I will certainly be with you. I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go to war with Pharaoh. Don't you worry about it. But you're my guy to go. And as we've prayed, as Mark mentioned in the call to worship, as, we, as I prayed also in our, in our uh, um, pastoral prayer, there's something very important for us to, to recognize in the call of Moses, and that is that this is the kind of people God calls. The eminently unqualified are the only qualified for the work of the kingdom. God did not choose you. God did not choose Israel. God did not choose Moses because they brought something to the table. He chose them because they brought nothing to the table. And then God blessed, and God worked through them. And that ultimately is the point of this, isn't it? That if anything's going to be done, it is going to be God that does it. So when Jesus comes and in his three years of ministry begins doing confrontation, he looks like both characters in this story. He looks like Moses on the one hand. He looks eminently unqualified. Did you hear it today in, in John 8? Go back and read it. In some sense, this is Moses coming and telling the people, I've been sent by God to get you out of here. And they're like, who are you? Who are you? He says, well, I'm the son of the father. Listen, hey, 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 look, if anybody's the son of the father, certainly it's not a child born out of fornication, okay? Go back and read this story. If God's using anybody to get us out of here, it's not you, buddy. Right? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Some child whose, whose birth we're all a little suspicious about. Oh, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, okay. Joseph, God got me pregnant. Okay. They're mocking him in that very text for that kind of claim. You're a child of fornication, okay? Who do you think you are? You're going to come in here and tell us God spoke to you? God's the one. I mean, he looks like Moses. He looks eminently unqualified. He's the son of a carpenter born with a questionable birth. And yet, not only is he the frail, if you will, the, the side of the weakness of our humanity, but he is God at the same time. So that in that same conversation in John chapter 8, as they're questioning his credentials and his qualifications, he drops this bomb on them when they say, who do you think you are? You think you're greater than Abraham? You think you've been around here to see Abraham? He goes, Abraham saw my day, and he rejoiced in it. They say, well, you're only 50 years old, okay? You've seen Abraham? And he says, let me tell you something. Before Abraham was, I am. He drops the I am on them. And they know what he's saying because when he says it, they pick up stones to kill him. They don't think it's a grammar mistake. You meant before Abraham was, you were, which was still ridiculous. 
They knew exactly what he was saying. Before Abraham was, I am. I am both Moses and the God of Moses who comes to do what only God can do. And he comes to go to war with Pharaoh and to get his people out for he knows their sorrows and he knows their griefs. And he's going to come to make war with him. Now we'll talk about that later because we're going to talk about the 10 plagues and not all of them, but we'll kind of hone in on them. And think about this battle that now God brings through Moses with Pharaoh. And we'll look at how Christ does this. But in this very text, we should see a picture of God and a picture of his servant. And in Christ, we should see these two things come together. Christ is Moses and he is the I am. That in Jesus Christ, we see the I am and the condescending God who loves his people and does for them infinitely more than Moses will do. Moses is weak and pathetic, and the best he can do is, is say, let my people go. But Jesus will come and bear the griefs of his people and suffer the crucifixion of Pharaoh. He will endure the griefs of his people to the very end so that he might deliver them, so that they might be brought out and they might worship him on his holy mountain. This is the God that we serve. And this is our champion, our liberator. I titled this sermon, God's Liberator. It's not Moses. It's not Moses. Even in this text, Moses is not the liberator. God's the liberator. Moses, go do it, but I'm going to do it through you. And ultimately, that liberator is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. Lord, it's an odd thing to confess, but I will confess it that so often I rejoice in you because of what you've done for me. And that is awesome. And it is so worthy of praise, and I do not in any way diminish it. But Lord, what I confess is that I am more interested in me than I am in you. And I pray that you would give us all eyes to see your glory. Lord, we know we cannot fully perceive it until that day when we see you as you are. But, but Father, we have seen you revealed in your fullness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I pray that you would give us hearts that burn when we think about you and who you are. Lord, sometimes we lack categories, and so we need the historical events of the incarnation of your love in the Lord Jesus Christ to even begin to understand it. And we thank you that you've given that to us, that you've taken the undefinable word and you have made it flesh in him so that we can see it acted out in history. So, Father, help us to love you and to worship you and to adore you for who you are, for you are worthy. And at the same time, we do thank you for what you've done, for you have known our sorrows. You have heard our cries. You have loved us, though we are not worthy, for we are rebellious against you. But you have loved us, and you've condescended in infinite mercy. And you have defeated our great Pharaoh and you have liberated us from our bondage, which we, like Israel, never wanted to admit we're in. But you've liberated us and freed us that you might bring us to the promised land. Oh, Father, we thank you for it. And we do so through the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.